Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens. My Time Capsule is a podcast where I ask my guest to tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian, writer, producer and director, Stuart Laws. Stuart performs sketch comedy and stand-up comedy. He supported James A. Caster on his UK tours and has appeared on and written for Radio 4. He has two specials on Next Up Comedy and has written a play, The Journey, that debuted at the Edinburgh Fringe at the Pleasance in 2018. He's performed regularly at the Edinburgh Fringe and his last show, Stuart Laws is All In, was described by The List as a deliriously funny and nonsensical hour that stands proud as a show not to be taken seriously in any way, shape or form. My sort of comedy, I think. That show is now available as a comedy special on American label 800 Pound Gorilla, so go and have a look at it. But first, let me tell you more about Stuart. Stuart runs his own production company, Turtle Canyon Media, at Pinewood Studios. He works with a wide range of talented new and established comedians and directs live comedy shows. He's produced 400 and directed over 250 sketches and short films. In 2017, Stuart produced and directed a comedy travelogue for Sky with James Acaster about the turning on of the Christmas lights in James's hometown of Kettering. Stuart's appearing again at the Edinburgh Fringe this summer in his new show, Is That Guy Still Going? He's taken a full show to Edinburgh every year since 2013, apart from, obviously, 2020, the year that people didn't feel like doing comedy, so all the comedians took the year off by spreading a deadly virus that closed all the theatres. Or so a bloke on Twitter told me. Anyway, let's discover the five things this very charming and funny man would like to have in his time capsule. Here is Stuart Laws. I love the fact that you're such a jack of all trades. And I like the fact that you're keen on sketches. 
for a while it was a dying art form, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That mm. I guess the way that the entertainment's sort of consumed now with social media and with those sort of short-form things, the actual sketch show is difficult to sort of get off the ground. People aren't gathering around to watch it. They want a quick, you know, short one. But there's you know, still exciting things happening, isn't there? Like with Lazy Susan and Jamie Dimitri. But it feels like the heyday has gone. But it's taken them ages and ages yeah. to get noticed. Well, not noticed. I mean, everybody noticed them very early on and then went, oh, they're very expensive, aren't they, sketch shows? Yeah, because yeah. everything's a different scene. Everything's a different costume. And, you know, you can't just film the whole thing. Whereas stand-up, you put someone in front of a mic and off you go. Yeah, yeah. Because I spent the first 20 years of my life doing sketches and being in sketch shows mostly. So it was always odd whenever I went to to go do something proper, you know, proper acting. (laughs) People would be surprised at the speed with which you made decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is such an art, isn't there, to that sort of specific acting where it is overacting, but also if you overact in a certain way or you tip it too far, it it becomes unfunny. There's such a Mm -hmm. a fine line to it where you're trying to ground a performance but also take it in a really ridiculous way. So like, what was it, Ted and Ralph in Far Show? Yeah. They just managed to do that final sketch of the series and it was just so heartbreaking and real that you're just like, yeah, sketches can do this. Yeah, absolutely. I think quite often that's the key, isn't it? That you are doing ridiculous characters or people that look ridiculous, but actually at the centre of them there has to be a reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely. So uh, that's my audition for your next time you're casting a sketch show, obviously. Great. Stuart, I won't keep you all morning. I'm going to talk to you about five things that you want to put into a time capsule. First item? Yeah, first thing. What do you want to put in? So the first thing is going to be the very first Tottenham Hotspur football shirt that I bought. Well, I didn't buy, but I got back in 1993. It was the famous Teddy Sheringham sort of <laughs> shirt where it had it, mine didn't have holston on the front because you weren't allowed to have beer brands on a child's size shirt <laughs> right. but it's the famous white with the blue collar yeah um and it was from when i basically started supporting spurs in the early 90s the reason why i put it in there is because it's sort of both ruined and made my life i think being a tottenham fan <laughs> um, i can understand that <laughs> i've got a grandson who's just chosen tottenham Oh, I've that's... got one who's chosen Arsenal and one who's chosen Tottenham. And I've explained to both of them, they're both going to be cursed. <laughs> <laughs> the thing with that, obviously, is exciting for the rest of family history to have that sort of rivalry going on. Um, yeah. I didn't have anything like that. My mum my, my and dad weren't really into football. It wasn't anyone. So I don't really know what crept in and just went, you need to get into football. And I think Gary Lineker, Gazza... And the FA Cup final of 91, I think, sort of tipped me over the edge. We were relatively close to Tottenham. I was like, this is it, this is it. But what it's given me is basically that was the last time Spurs won an actual proper major trophy. Mm -hmm. So I've got a lifetime of coming very close, but never quite succeeding. And I think that's, you know, mentally set me up quite well to sort of be a relatively well-adjusted human to just be like, well, nothing will ever work out for you, but you might have some fun along the way. So deal with that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a nice attitude. Uh, Yes, my grandson became a Tottenham supporter as they got to the final of the European Cup. That, again, just typifies Spurs in that we somehow got to that final by scoring with the last kick of a game almost. Mm -hmm. And then 
within 26 seconds, we gave away a handball in the penalty area that by the rules, either side of that season wasn't a handball and then lost the, <laughs> the Champions League final. And I was sat there watching it at a friend's wedding. They said to me, please come, we'll give you a room and we'll put it on for you. Just don't tell other people. <laughs> and I was sat back there and just within a minute was just like, I guess I should probably just go back into the wedding, shouldn't I? Uh, but that's not what football's about. It's about all of the build-up about those spontaneous moments. And I find it unusual because I'm someone who sort of actually does... I don't get excited about things. I don't mm -hmm. get, like... I sort of have a very sort of level, sort of like... People go, oh, are you, are you excited? Are you going on holiday? And I go, no, it's not a, th a thing that I, I have. <laughs> and then even in the moment, I often quite struggle to sort of like just relax and sort of enjoy a thing. Not, not enjoy a thing, but like just, you know, people are very good sometimes at just going into an environment and just being themselves and relaxing and all of that. Mm. Football is one of the few things that I can absolutely tune in to. And I've discovered that I can't do that when I'm, in the football stadium because I'm a season ticket holder this season for the first time. And what it's made me realise is I can't watch football in and amongst a load of other people like that. Yeah. So like when England went to the Euros, I did go to the semi-final and mm -hmm. that was great. And it was a pretty good experience. Really enjoyed it. The final, I was like, I can't be amongst those other people. No. So I just went and watched it with, with a friend just quietly at a house. Is that because it's going to wind you up too much, you think? I don't know if it's going to wind me up. I just find it all like, I find it quite a weirdly intimate personal experience. Right. And very few other things in life sort of have that effect on me. I find it interesting and weird how football can do that to me. And mm. I, when I was younger, it definitely made me like, you know, Spurs not winning or something, or something stupid would ruin a weekend or something like that. And I had to work and be like, this is not okay. Mm. You need to sort this out so that you, as soon as the game's over, you switch it off and you're back to normal life. But I always think it's strange if you are an avid supporter of someone, which anybody who's gone to an away game, mm. you demonstrate that you are. So I watched Newcastle thrash Spurs. Oh, yeah, you're going to bring that up, are you? I am going to bring it up, yeah. <laughs> but what disappointed me was the number of Spurs supporters that got up and left before half time. Yeah. And you go, well, this is where they really need you. And that's an interesting thing with Spurs fans this season is that there's been such a clamouring sort of like unrest all season about so many different things. And, um, you know, there are some really good and exciting elements of being a live football fan. And I appreciate my personality doesn't allow me to sort of do those things that, that you want in the stadium. Mm. But then sometimes when you are in the stadium and you hear like a casual homophobic slur from somewhere or you hear a... You know, weird sort of discussion happening and you go, I sort of don't sort of agree with this element no. either. And it's a weird mishmash football of like things I fundamentally am opposed to and find difficult to engage with. <laughs> but also I cannot deny the emotional power it has over me. Yeah. Um, and like the other thing is, yeah, sure, maybe going to football games 19 times in a season is not for me, but also going every now and then are some of the biggest and best experiences I've had. Like seeing England win a major semi-final. Mm. I was by myself. Badil and Skinner were like seven rows behind me. Yeah. There was just some random lads who'd come down from Bradford. We were just <laughs> having a chat. They'd got tickets on the, on the day as well. And, you know, you have that sort of collective thing. 
you go, oh, this is really cool. But then maybe it's the humdrum just sort of having to go and watch Spurs lose 2-1 to Newcastle at home and just be like, well, what's the point? It's raining. (laughs) (laughs) Someone said something weird behind me. There's a guy that I cannot take my mind off of who sits two rows behind me who goes, come on, Tottenham, (laughs) every every couple of minutes. And it just burrows deep into my skull. Yeah. Have you ever been able to join in with the singing? I I find it impossible, I have to say. (sighs) First of all, I I can sing. So I find it almost impossible to do that non-singing. That football yes. fans. Will you just shout it? <laughs> Come on, there's a tune here, lads. Come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're trying to get everyone into different harmonies and <laughs> and the basses. Come on. <laughs> You'll never walk alone. Yes, <laughs> I can very occasionally, but I've noticed that over the course of this season, I've sung less and less. And obviously part of that has to do with Tottenham doing worse and worse, but it's also partly, I think, just me being like, this is not something I'm fully enjoying and I, I, I'm finding it a bit tough in this sort of area of the of the stadium of, like, you know, the people around me and sort yeah, of yeah. the atmosphere at times. Yeah. And maybe that is because it's a bit toxic. There's been definitely times at the England games where we've been singing Sweet Caroline and having a great time, mm-hmm. singing Three Lions and turning around and seeing Baddiel and Skinner singing it. You're like, this is great. This is great stuff. So it is, it's a weird sort of, um, you know, the two wolves inside you. <laughs> yeah. What I find strange about football is that you have this absolute passion for it, but then it, it will let you down. For example, that mm. semi-final before that final that you saw, where you fell in love with them, where they won, the last time yes. that you could remember Tottenham winning anything, <laughs> that was the one where Gaza did his knee in, wasn't it? Is that right? In the semi-final, didn't Gaza try to tackle someone and didn't play in that final? He Is that right? did, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he, that was, he, oh my God, it's such a tragic career. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten about that. That is, and again, it's those sort of like the extremities of the emotion. And when people say things like, oh, I don't, I don't like reality TV, you know, it's so lame or things like that, or like, you know, talking about Love Island or stuff like that. Often it's because they haven't actually watched it yet. And Mm. if they did, they'd be immediately caught into it because (laughs) football essentially is a huge reality TV show that you (laughs) like, for me, the reason why it hits so deep often is because I'm like, Oh, well, that's Oliver Skip. He came through our academy and Mm -hmm. he got his opportunity under Pochettino and now he scored a winning goal against Chelsea, his first goal for the club. So it's like all of those things stack on top of each other and are heightened. And with Gaza, you just go like, if I could time travel, I would go back and I'd tell Gaza, don't hesitate, the ball will make it to you. Mm -hmm. You're a 96 semi-final. And that just one centimetre would have made all the difference. And potentially, you know, that shifts a huge element in his sort of career and yeah. and the history of England and uh, as a football team and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Don't make that tackle. Don't make that tackle. But also, it's why people love people like Harry Kane, because without a doubt, and I'm going to cite Sheringham here, you could go for the money. He was a great Tottenham player. He clearly loved Tottenham, but Man United dragged him over. And, you know, as a result, he got the treble. Yeah. Repeated by Man City. Sadly, he did that. But Harry Kane is now the highest scorer for Tottenham ever. He's the highest scorer for England, but he's been a Tottenham man and boy all his life. And that's very rare in football. And I wonder if finally at the end of his career, with you saying how 
toxic it's become this season and how disappointed people are. You, you just go, oh, I wonder if he's finally going to go, do you know what, I'm, I'm just going to cash in for the last few years. Yeah, I've had this chat with a friend of mine, the comedian, uh, writer Mark G. Smith. He normally only messages me when Spurs are doing something embarrassing, so it's nice to hear <laughs> from him a lot recently. Uh, <laughs> um, but he said, you have to let him go. It's, mm. uh, it's literally a crime what you're doing to Harry Kane. (laughs) He needs to be let go because he is the best footballer that England have produced in, you know, decades. There's players that have won Champions Leagues that you'd be like, what? I don't remember them as a footballer. But Harry Kane needs something because... Although I wonder if the records are enough. If he can say to people, I was the top scorer. It's not likely to be beaten for a while, is it? Although everybody said that about Rooney's record, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And And it's gone within a couple of years. Yeah, I don't know whether it is for for Kane because he he's got that sort of without the um, criminal side of it, the Ronaldo mentality. All right, it's a terrible question to ask a Tottenham fan, but where do you think he should go? I mean, clearly you think he should stay, but if he went where? This is the stressful thing is because when he was going to go to Man City, I was sort of like resigned to it. I was like, perfect. You know, I don't care in any way about Man City. Mm. They're, uh, you know, this green uh, sport washing club that has no soul (laughs) i don't care if they win everything because it doesn't matter send him there he'll score 35 plus goals a season he'll get the record he'll win champions league he'll win premier league good Mm. now if pochettino goes to chelsea he might go to chelsea you just go now now my soul starts to get torn apart yeah if i was going to send him anywhere i'd I'd send him to take over from benzema yeah, enjoy yourself over in La Liga, score 40 goals a season, great time. Fantastic. Well, maybe he'll stay, let's hope. Anyway, I think I've demonstrated that I know far too much about Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, though. We should definitely put the Sheringham shirt without the beer logo on the front from Holstein. Yeah. I'm glad you chose Sheringham rather than Gaza. Yeah, Sheringham is my sort of like aspirational playing style because I'm not a man blessed with pace. I'm not mm. quick over 10 yards, but mm. I feel like I can I can read the game pretty well and, I, and my movement I feel like is a is a strength. Yeah. But it's uh it's it's the pace and Sheringham was a, a slower player. Mm. But a, a a very good intelligent player. Yeah, that skill to move backwards when everybody else is going forwards. Yeah, which yeah. he did often in the penalty area. Brilliant. Yeah, and, and I and I do constantly with my stand-up comedy career. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> okay, well, that's the first thing in, Stuart. So let's move on to item number two. Uh, so we are moving on to the gilet. Uh-huh. Now, a gilet is... Oh, it's a body warmer, isn't it? But it's a... Fa- I've somehow gotten into calling them gilets because I found the word funny is inherently a a funny sort of rhythm to it. Um, (laughs) And in 2014 was when I first started wearing a gilet as a stand-up comedian because uh, a producer came to my preview and I had my arm in a sling because I had fractured my upper arm playing football. And so the arm was in a sling, did the preview, and he said, uh, I'd really enjoyed it, but you need to think about having something like that because what it did was it said to the audience, this isn't just a normal like jeans and t-shirt sort of comedian. Yeah. There's something a bit weirder going on. Mm-hmm. So it just reset our expectations in our head straight away. And because I had a bit of material about 
a gilet just sort of mentioned because I'd found the word funny <laughs> in Edinburgh that year, about three days in, was in a shop, saw a ridiculous gilet, bought it, started wearing that on stage. And now almost 10 years later, it's very much my um, clown suit. The, yeah. the, the identifying, you know, people talk about having like the identifiable silhouette or something like that. Mm. It's, it, it's not a silhouette. It wouldn't work in silhouette unless you can identify the lack of sleeves, <laughs> but it's that identifiable image of being like, oh yeah, Stuart's coming on stage now. It's going to be slightly, slightly weirder than if he wasn't wearing a gilet, basically. Yes. It's a, a slight primer to the audience. What brought you to take that risk early on with your style, which is that sort of almost as if they know what you're going to do, almost that sort of, ah, you know, ah, you're with me now. Before they're right with you, talk to them as if they are right with you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. A friend described my stand-up once as like observational comedy, but I've, I'm observing the wrong thing. Like, <laughs> So it's that confidence of just talking and being like, oh, yeah, you all know what I'm talking about, but actually it's gone off in a direction that isn't what everyone else has thought it was going to be about yeah yeah I, I who knows what how it's ended up there and you know i've worked over the years a lot to try and make it more you know definitely my early years was way more uh esoteric right. and definitely struggled to make it sort of work on sort of a broader level mm. but i de- yeah it, you know from sort of like 20 15 16 17 onwards it was sort of like a run of shows that sort of progressively got better and better at sort of bringing people into my world and yeah. being like and now they're with me sort of thing and that special that went out i think was you know is is my best show so far and is is still like i think weird it's not going to be for everyone but at the same time it's it's i think i'm quite happy now with the ability to get people in on a weird story and before you know it i'm there's an <laughs> a routine about the pitter patter of tiny feet and the problem with that is my entire flat is carpeted which means it's on the ceiling <laughs> and and then having to knock it down and get it out and it turns out it's an alien and all stuff like that and yeah. you know that it starts with that little pitter patter of tiny feet sort of thing and then ends up with me getting my brain reset by a man in black sort of thing. Mm. Um, the wonderful thing about an audience starting to know your style is that they come right from the beginning with a knowledge of you. The difficulty of starting as a stand-up is that you have to tell people who you are mm. before they go with you, I think. So yeah, almost yeah. every new stand-up has that problem. People are looking, well, I don't, are you joking now? Or are you, is that really you? Yeah, yeah. And it's only when you get to the point where actually you have some notoriety and people say, well, I've, I've not seen him live, but I have saw this clip or I saw him on Live at the Apollo. They go, I know what he's about. And I really like the way he does that thing of, and then off they go. You're, they're with you yeah, from yeah. the start. That makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, it's funny, you know, having done it now for, well, technically for so long, over a, well over a decade, mm. you just... Occasionally, I, you know, I walk into a gig and I'm less like, oh, yeah, I think I'm probably going to die tonight. It doesn't feel like good vibes that it's interesting that that sort of energy doesn't disappear despite having done you know sort of almost every variety of gig and then going out and then sort of the persona the the jokes suddenly kick in and you just mm. go oh yeah i forgot that oh yeah i can i've played this room this sort of room before i've i've played to four stag do's and four hen do's on the one night sort of <laughs> <Yeah>. thing <laughs> um, it's a fascinating sort of job and a really interesting way to sort of like 
get the vibe of people and how people react to comedy. And I, it's something that I, I love doing, but I always have the argument with myself of like, how much longer am I going to do it for? Because the directing, the producing mm-hmm. sort of comedy, you know, takes more and more of my time up. Yes. And trying to weigh that out. But I still think it's such a useful thing to give me context of how Britain, in, you know, specifically reacts to comedy and how how they engage with things, even from like a, a dramatic sort of point of view like yeah. you know you get to understand how people will how much shrift they'll give you and where you might lose people and things like that mm. the whole idea of the gilet though when you look at uh, stand-up comedians who started and they have this one thing that makes them stand out like that and then they go through this very long career and i'm thinking for example uh russell brand having his hair sticking up at the back almost as if he'd been to sleep on a couch you know, that thing yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But Johnny hadn't noticed. And that messiness, that became part of his image. I saw him backstage once with hairspray and back combing it and making it stand up. And he thought, oh, right, that's, it's sort of in a way that's your preparation. Putting that thing on you gives you the feeling of I'm ready to go now. Mm. There comes a point with all of them, which I've noticed, where you suddenly get, he hasn't done it. I've seen him do it. And he, oh, you haven't back combed your hair. And it's interesting. I wonder at what point they go, I don't need it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I definitely find that it's almost like I'm not fully committing to a gig if I'm not wearing the gilet. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that's gone. They're not going to get the full Stuart Laws. It might be, I often won't do it if I'm comparing because I'm just like, as a compare, you need to be a bit more anonymous. Mm. You need to just be there to sort of get everything going and things like that. I think that's fine. You don't need to stand out so much. But if I'm doing a spot, and I'm not wearing the gilet. I'm like, it's either for one of two reasons. One, I think there's potential that the gig might be tough. And I'm just like, well, I'm not going to put my full self out there. Right. I'm going to just sort of go out there as a normal person and just, or I'm trying new material and I want it to work without the gilet. I want to work it without any prior context. I want to see how it works as like a normal person doing the routine. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'm particularly abnormal as a person. I, I, I think there's the, the the useful thing is it just primes the audience slightly to be like, oh, that's weird. We don't normally see that sort of thing on mm-hmm. sort of stage. It's it feels slightly different. Um, and I have a few easy routines with with it to sort of get in. Yeah. Um, it's a good trick though, telling people what you're going to do. We're going to do this bit now. Yes, this is the part of the show where I do this. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, then when you do it, they go, well, we knew that because you just told us, so it's not a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something interesting with, um, so a previous guest of yours, Harry Hill, Mm. um, I'm a huge fan of, and um, I remember back in the the 90s, my dad sort of mentioning this TV show, and it was like, it's like he was like, this is the sort of thing Stuart would like, and it was his (laughs) Channel 4 show, and I was obsessed with it, um, and was like, I, I couldn't sort of believe that something like that would exist and someone else would do that, and that that was coming out of someone else's brain. No. And he's still probably the most daring comedian yeah. on the circuit. Still does things that even those ardent fans go, what's he doing? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's so exciting. And it's I saw him do um, a preview of his show back in 2005 mm. at a small venue in Windsor, sort of 120-seater. Mm. Didn't know what a preview was, had never done stand-up before. And then just like a nerd sort of hung around afterwards and spoke to him. Yeah. And he was so nice and just had like a normal 
chat with me about films and what it was like to be on tour and how what him and his team do and things like that mm-hmm. and didn't have any of the vocal tics was just wearing normal clothes and i was just like i couldn't quite fathom it as you know someone <laughs> it's like 20 years old or something just being like what i don't you know i was so ex you know expecting him to be sort of like a bit hyper and you know still in the zone and all that yeah and it was just such a fascinating moment i've subsequently played that same venue on my tour of my show and it was such like a big moment to be like uh, well it was one of the biggest venues on my tour mm-hmm. where it was been the smallest for him on that one <laughs> yeah quite um where he was just trying out the ideas and you know seeing how it went but it was such like an exciting moment to be like oh cool i'm doing that now and oh yeah hang on you wear a gilet on stage, he wears a big collar. You know, there's like, (laughs) there's all these little tiny sort of, you know, I frequently say honk honk on stage because I found (laughs) it funny. And he has, you know, all his vocal tics and things like that. And you go, ah, okay, I can try and pretend, but there's obvious inspirational elements here. He's amazing. I saw him do um, the tryout for the tour he's just done down in Brighton. And there's a moment in it where he basically gets people to say whether it's share and tear or tray bake. And he just puts up a bit and says, what's that? And they go, it's tray bake. And he goes, yeah. And they go, tray bake, yeah. Tray bake. No, no, tear and share. It's tear and share. Tear and share. He does that. <laughs> and he does that with people. And I saw him afterwards. I said, it's really funny. And he said, yeah, and I thought it would be funny, but um, I, I just did it really, really long tonight because I didn't know where it would die. You know, I wanted to find right. the point where people went, no, that's enough now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was willing to absolutely let the thing fail in his tryout in order to discover the length it ought to be. It's amazing. It's f- fascinating. And it's definitely something. So I direct a bunch of live shows as well. And mm. I try to apply the same things to mine where previews are not for your ego when you're working something up, because as a comedian, you want to get that laugh all the time. And I have frequently said, you're going to break the show today and you're going to do it deliberately in a way that will make certain bits not work. Yeah. And you can't be afraid of dying because that's how you're going to learn and make this show better. And yeah, occasionally an audience will go away and be like, oh, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? That didn't really work. Mm. But the show will get better. And that's why they're billed as work in progresses. They'll build as previews. The audience are taking that risk. And there's nothing more exciting in my mind than seeing a comedian take those risks and something working and something unique happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's what it's for, I think. Yes. It's yeah. for that sort of experiment, that sort of daring. And when you see it, it's thrilling. I can remember clearly the first time I saw somebody take those sort of risks. And I was very young and I'd just come into it thinking I was really good at comedy. God, I'm funny. And uh, <laughs> and then I sat in the wings waiting to go on and watch Rick Mail for the first time. Wow. And just thought, oh, shit, I'm so unfunny. <laughs> so, yeah, I absolutely understand what you're saying. So all power to the gilet. <laughs> all power to the gilet. <laughs> <laughs> let's put it in there. That's the second thing, Stuart. Okay, let's move on to uh, number three. Okay, time for a short ad break. Do bear with us because this is how podcasts earn us podcasters a bit of money. Thanks. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. That's another 25p in the bank. If you'd rather not have this podcast interrupted by adverts, then if you subscribe to Acast Plus for £2.99 a month, yeah, honestly, only £2.99 a month will take all the adverts away. But for now, let's find out what else Stuart Laws would like to have in his time capsule. So number three is not a physical thing. Uh, it's the park run personal best or parkrun in general Mm -hmm. do you know of parkrun yeah i do yeah i've watched (laughs) (laughs) so i you know i i would say that i was um a man who's been blessed by sort of like a fast metabolism you know a a frame that is relatively slim in general and Mm -hmm. it's never been a huge struggle for me to do that to stay in sort of a slimish sort of shape. Yeah. Um, I imagine that my internal organs have been wrecked by sugar and <laughs> fat. <laughs> but from the outside, you go, oh, that guy seems like he's in reasonable shape. Um, <laughs> so when you when you hit into your thirties and you, when it when you get there, you'll you'll identify this as well. Mm-hmm. Your body starts to sort of slow down on those elements. I'm looking forward to it. Yes. <laughs> And yeah, as someone who played football, uh, has played football since he was a kid and still plays for uh, the same football team, 11-a-side team that he played for when he was 17. You know, I have all of that, but I could do was just literally just play football a couple of times a week. And that was my fitness. Then, uh, yeah, about five, six years ago, a friend was like, why don't you come and do this park run? It's 5K. I'd never run 5K in my life. I'd Anytime I'd ever gone for a run, I'd give up after about 10, 15 minutes because it always just felt impossible, horrible, didn't like it. Did that. And essentially what the park run does is it's a group of people. So the one I do is in Rickmansworth, which is a really beautiful one around a couple of lakes two laps of this these these lakes there's a beautiful cafe at the end that serves wonderful sourdough <laughs> and really good lattes and my friends would go down there and i i joined and what they do is you at the end you get a time for how fast you did it and it's all very encouraging of people to run at their own pace and to not be racing each other it's it's a group of people being supportive of everything so you've got Mm. people there finishing in 17 minutes you've got people there finishing in 55 minutes who are basically walking the route and everyone's being supported and it's a really nice communal atmosphere um you know you can commit to as much or as little as you want so a friend of mine is the race director there and he you know every 
month he'll like be in charge of the race and I'll volunteer and be like the timekeeper or something like Mm. that. But other times I can turn up by myself, run it, have a coffee, go home. And then it's that progress. I think my brain is always looking for like the statistical element to be like, oh, I can track that's where I've done that and I've done this particular course in this time before and now I can do it at this time oh I changed my running shoes and actually I can run it quicker now because these running shoes are lighter and have a better sort of sole and things like that yeah all of that fascinates me as someone who used to play like computer games like Grand Theft Auto and look at the statistics of how far my character had walked or how many people had shot in the head. And I was like, that's interesting. I've shot 18 people in the head. Yes. So for me, it was, yeah, my, you know, I would say anyone who's doing parkrun or managing to run that distance, that's a massive achievement. Um, and for me, like as time went on, it went like, right, if I can go sub 25 minutes, that would be a great aim. And then it was like, mm. can you go sub 24? That would be a great aim. And then, my friend Matt is a very good runner, but he's also a very good cheerleader. He absolutely loves seeing other people succeed. And mm. he he can, I think he can run a sub 19. Oh, that's fast, yeah. Very fast. Yeah. But what he loved to do was pace other people. And he said one one day, this was pre, this was 2019. He was like, right, let's get you to this sub 23. And he paced me to it and got me, 2259 <laughs> an extraordinary sort of like amazing pacing job but the photo of it that can and maybe it's the photo that should go into the time capsule there, there'd be occasionally be a photographer taking photos at the two and a half k mark mm. and he just looks so happy just sort of running along pacing his friend uh, my friend who runs a gym, he's a personal trainer as well, and I go over there sometimes. He was also running alongside, looked pretty relaxed and happy. And then I looked like a skeleton that's somehow <laughs> still, still dragging along the pavement. A very wet skeleton, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. And I think around the same time I went to um, a family wedding and there was a photo of me in a suit, you know, obviously hair done, looking like the absolute limit of how good I can look. Mm. And then there was the park run of me looking like a skeleton at the <laughs> lowest I can look like. And uh, uh, my friend Mark posted it into our little group of us who who go running, um, Instagram versus reality. Yes, um, very good. <laughs> I love the idea that people can just turn up to park run. Yeah, it's so nice. Run for life, I think, is a brilliant thing as well. That's 5K, isn't it, usually? Yeah, yeah. I've been to those, and they can be really moving. But park run is that sort of thing of going, do you know what? This is not important. Yeah, that's it. Very relaxed. Just do it if you want to. Yeah. My mum and her husband have come down, and they they did it, and that's such like an exciting thing because that's something in their heads they would never have been able to do. You know, they were in their late 50s at the time when they did it and they weren't big on that sort of exercise because running such a different type of exercise um but the fact that they both did it was exciting and they wouldn't have done it if i hadn't have got into it and been like this is come down and do this and this is a fun thing my mm. sister's gotten into it and it's you know you don't want to be one of those people that's like everyone got to run because it's obviously it's different for everyone and there's sort of obviously access to it d- depending on your your physical ability but like if you are capable of getting involved in it and it's something that does sort of interest you, it can, you know, during the pandemic, being able to go out for those runs, I would just put a podcast in, go out, 
run for like just over an hour, just sort of through like woodlands. And like, I'm lucky to live in Ryslip, which I didn't really even realize fully how many nice areas there are here before mm. the pandemic, where suddenly you're looking for new routes and places you can go. And there's like a beach and like beautiful woodland and beautiful rivers and things like that. And you just go, yeah, this is great. You're just sort of lost for a bit. And if you know, I was lucky enough to have that fitness and to build that up to be able to run for over an hour. But it just, I think some without something like that, the pandemic would have been such a much more difficult thing to engage with if you didn't have that ability. Yeah, to. yeah. I'm sure lots of people who didn't or didn't find those sort of things. It was yeah. really difficult. Yes. Well, it's a lovely thing to put in there and you make me tempted to do it. <laughs> yeah. I've done what I like to think of the full circle of couch to 5K in as much as I did couch to 5K and then 5K to couch. <laughs> well, I actually did a series called Grave New World, which is on Prime at the moment, which is basically a, a sort of current affairs type, type spoof show about emerging from a pandemic. Uh, and one of the segments on it we had was 5K to couch. And it was like, <laughs> how can you adjust back into this world? Yeah. Now we've all been doing running. Now that the pandemic is coming to an end how can you get back to being on the couch all the time uh, one way would be to go around a park run and just shout at all the people who are walking it's a run it's a park <laughs> run clues in the name get out of my way yeah yeah but i'm going to put your park run in if we've got two left we've got one you want to keep and one you want to bury right so i'm gonna this is this is gonna be a weirder one uh it's a super king size bed <laughs> right <laughs> how tall are you I'm six foot tall. I'm a surprising six foot tall because mm. I'm a sloucher um, and I carry myself with the energy of a much smaller man. <laughs> <laughs> but when I you know, had my own place you know, where I actually had to buy the bed, it was like, when would that have been? 2016. So not a huge amount of time ago, but it was like, you know, when you rent places, you're often like, you know, sleeping on a bed that's already there. When I had the opportunity to buy my own bed, I was like, I'm going super king. I don't know what it was, but I wanted to go super king. I love that feeling of being in bed and just being like, great, there's so many options here. I could be on the west side. I could be on the east side. I could sleep diagonally. I could sleep the reverse. I could sleep horizontally. Basically, I sleep pretty much the same way most nights, but I know that I've got options. <laughs> I could invite people in and not even notice. We did do the test where I lay on one side with my eyes closed and uh, headphones on playing music and then had someone jump onto the other side. Couldn't feel it. Brilliant. And it was excellent. Yeah. So I think we also worked out that you could you could fit four people in that bed comfortably. Yeah. Uh, I've never done that, obviously. No, obviously. No. <laughs> people... No. People weirdly, I keep inviting three people over just for, <laughs> just, just like, let's just have drinks. You can stay over if you want. There's a sofa on, or my bed. Ten, we've been together for 10 minutes in the pub. We've had a nice chat. Now come, <laughs> and, come and get in my bed. Why not? <laughs> the first time I slept in a super king-size bed was at the Palmelia Hilton in Perth in Australia. My family came to stay with me and they upgraded me to a suite. And they said, it's got a super king-size bed, sir. And I went, oh, great. And we went in. They are fucking huge. Yeah, yeah. It basically takes up all of the floor space of my room apart from, so the door opens and that sort <laughs> of, it, it, it comes it comes within, yeah, within a foot of the edge of the bed. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so then that's the space I have available. 
And I just thought to myself, right, what do you want in here? I did think, like, do you want a nice chair where you sit and you read and you smoke Gauloise and <laughs> you know, drink cognac? And then I was like, you're not thinking of yourself there. That's a different person you've invented. Yes. <laughs> so then I was like, what you like doing is waking up and just easing into the day gently. And what's nicer way to do that than a large super king where you can just roll around a bit, find the area that you feel comfortable in, or you can just bury yourself on the other side, right up against the wall. You know that if you wake up, there's going to be an epic Lord of the Rings-esque journey to the other <laughs> side of the bed. <laughs> there are cold patches. Oh, yeah, it's, exactly. It's got everything. I remember waking up in that bed the first time I slept in it. Uh, my wife and I got in this bed and sort of waved at each other from the other side of the bed. <laughs> Hello, how's it over there? Oh, it's nice over here. And then in the night, both our under 10-year-old children got into bed with us and I woke up lying in a tiny corner. <laughs> enormous. Now people would be like, oh, that's a waste. But when do you get to do that and feel tiny and feel... Like you're getting lost in something. Yeah. Unless you get, unless you're constantly, I don't know, going to to New York uh, <laughs> or Mexico City or somewhere like that. The best way to recreate that is to curl up small on a super king size bed and just be like, "But I'm safe here. I'm safe." Right back to you, tiny little baby in a big cot. That's what it is. Mm. Yeah. Just That's... screaming out for Gaza. <laughs> Do you have a large mobile above the bed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well, well we'll all come round we'll have a go on it <laughs> I'm going to do it when you're asleep you won't know. a bit like Michael McIntyre I'm going to raid your bedroom and just jump on it and say see he didn't feel a thing marvellous <laughs> that's the fourth thing so we've got one final thing to put in there that you'd like to bury and forget okay so I'm trying to there's, there's a few things obviously going through the brain here mm -hmm. there's embarrassing moments when you're just like oh it'd be great to never have had that happen before yeah but then there's like larger scale things where you're just like that's sort of a stressful thing that your brain goes through but then i think what i've had to settle on is psoriasis right and do you suffer from that no no i know no, i do <laughs> It's a pain. It's a pain. And I'm, I've been very lucky with it over the last, coming on for two decades now, which is, uh, it's gross when you remember how much time has passed when you think, obviously I think that the 90s was the last decade. Yeah. And it's a long, long time ago now. But I, I had early 20s, had psoriasis pretty badly. And obviously it's something that you have for your life. It's an autoimmune disorder where your cells sort of are, provoked into creating excess cells regularly um, which sort of form these little plaques on your skin that become itchy and red and raised and things like that yeah when yeah. i first developed it i didn't really understand what it was a small patch developed in my early 20s and then pretty swiftly within like a month or two it was covering sort of like maybe like 50% of my body. Oh my word. And I remember having to play football like I would never I would never wear like short sleeves or shorts or anything like that. I grew mm. my hair sort of pretty long because it was sort of coming down onto my face and yeah. when it's in your hair as well it becomes this sort of like matted mess of dead skin cells and you know pretty rough horrible stuff. I'd wake up in the morning and my bed sheets would sort of be covered in sort of flakes of skin. And mm -hmm. having a shower was literally not possible for a while because it would crack my skin and it would be too painful. Yeah. So I'd only ever be able to have like these salt or uh, oat baths <sighs> to sort of not 
come out just bleeding, basically. Um, my mum was and is uh, a St. John's ambulance person, has like, you know, this sort of like lovely, caring sort of attitude and like mm. wanted to find out. So she was like, right, let's work out. Let's go into like diet stuff. So we like got rid of milk from my diet yeah. and we tried to sort of get me eating a lot more fish and things like that. And it's difficult to know because there is technically no actual cure for it. And like diet things are all sort of subjective sort of things. So for some people, they're like, yeah, this worked. But, mm -hmm. you know, for other people, it, it doesn't. And is a chance that it could just be placebo and things like that. Yeah. I, at the time, had like, and it probably was related to, to this as well because it can be related to periods of stress, had like come out of a long-term relationship that I got into when I was like 17 and left when we were like 19, 20 or something like that. And to be like a very early 20 something and trying to be like, oh, and you're, you know, it, it was basically impossible to sort of like then get to know someone because you have the anxiety in your head, like in a romantic way, mm. but you have that anxiety in your head of like, well, at some point I have to reveal that I look like this sort of wild lizard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, as 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 a, a person who sort of struggled with like those sort of interactions and struggled with opening up anyway as a teenager and was incredibly shy, introverted, it was like this extra thing on top of you of like, well, now you can't because, you know, you you this is a pretty gross situation for anyone else to encounter. Yeah, you can't reveal this to anyone. Yeah. You'd met the one girl who she knew about this. Oh, no, it had come on after ah. after we'd broken up. So it was just sort of, and, you know, who knows what provoked it to come on, but it was like perhaps the stress of that and, right. you know, you know, various situations maybe caused that to happen or it may have just literally been it is a thing that sort of uh, shows up in, in people's late teens, early 20s yeah. who have had it the whole time. And so, yeah, we, we tried a lot of things. I'm not someone who likes sort of like getting a suntan or being in the sun, but would be out there sort of doing that to try and get the vitamin D and to, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of stuff is supposed to be good for, for the skin and right. for psoriasis. And you'd get like the topical treatments and creams, but they were steroidal. So they sort of would weaken the skin at the same time. And, yes, right. and it's difficult when you're that covered in it that you're just sort of, it becomes your like routine and everything of having to deal with every day of like, right, you wake up and that huge patch that's on your torso there just is like red and raw and you need to sort of deal with that. So it was a pretty stressful time. And then it sort of just, I think I was due to potentially do some sunbed stuff, which is supposed to be good with it, but it has its, you know, again, you can only use it so much. And it just suddenly started to subside out of nowhere. And it went down to, you know, I'd, I'd watch sort of patches, like literally just disappear sort of bit by bit and feel like the, the, the stuff that was basically my entire right leg just suddenly just disappearing and down to like, uh, you know, a tiny patch on my knee. And all my head was like completely, under my scalp was completely covered. And then it just sort of went back to like one bit right at the front. Then over the next 15 years up to now, I still have small patches of it. But like, it's like they've localized there and they've gone, we're going to just stay here. And it's like, sometimes there's bits that are literally a millimeter wide that I'm like, mm. I just know, oh, there's that little patch, a little bit at the front of my scalp, which is you know, maybe a centimeter big that just is there. And occasionally yeah. like, I'll look on my arm and there'll be a bit, I'll be like, oh no, is it coming back? And I used to be so worried about that after it first subsided when a bit would come in. 
and basically my whole body would go into like, oh, it's coming back oh. because that's what all the research says that you've got it now for life and it will just flare up occasionally. And I was like, I can't, I can't deal with that coming back in the way that it did last time. But then you're like, if I get stressed, is that going to cause it to come back stronger? Of course. Yeah. So trying to like find coping mechanisms for that sort of thing becomes like, and obviously, you know, there's lots of people out there with way worse autoimmune disorders with mm -hmm. way worse sort of, you know, things going on in their life. But it's, it is, a, it's a, um, you can only sort of process the things that you have going on and for, you know, it's not a debilitating condition. I mean, there will be psoriatic arthritis later on, but it's still like there's a it's an interesting combination of things, especially in a society that values sort of aesthetics and things like that, where psychologically it's a difficult thing as well with the pain and like the, the difficulty of cracked skin and things like that of like a daily existence. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't wish it on anyone. That pain that's always there, that really wears you down, doesn't it? Yes. I can understand the idea of a large bed and the different patches on it, the different areas. You would want that. You think, I've got to move and find somewhere else. Yeah, I yeah. I can see how comforting that would be, yeah. Yeah, I haven't actually made that link before, but yeah, you're, you're like back when that yeah the stress was at its worst i had basically just had a single bed so i would wake up and there'd be no it would be like right well that's all of this sort of dead skin around me and there's nowhere to go oh sure well, yeah. absolutely. Let's put psoriasis in there. It's, um, I know there are lots of people who suffer from it. and Get rid of it. For you, I should put it in there and it's gone. Yes. That's, yeah, that does feel nice, actually. Fantastic. What a lovely time I've had talking to you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you so much. This is a joy. It's, it's a really lovely podcast. And it's, it's interesting as someone who basically, when I do podcasts or do you know you know chat show things or things like that it's like the aim often is to try and hit those punchlines. be funny yes yeah. yeah and it's sort of nice to get away from that a little bit and get it slightly more under under the hood so to speak yeah quite not that um we weren't hitting punchlines by the oh, way oh there's some crackers in there <laughs> if they missed it go back and listen again there's some yeah. top ones although i still love your <laughs> I love your chuckle brother joke. And that's me. That's I'm from the pantomime world. So, you know. <laughs> it's good to have a real clear, simple wordplay gag in the show where everyone just like, yep, great, right. We know he's got the chops. We know he can do that. He can deliver the straightforward gag. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chuckle brothers have no children because one had a vasectomy and the other one had a vasectomy. You. <laughs> thank you <laughs> wish I'd written it Stuart thank you very much dear man thank you very much for having me you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me Mike Fenton Stevens and my guest Stuart Laws thanks for listening there are links in the written description of this episode to all the things Stuart's up to including his Edinburgh show and also to sites that tell you more about psoriasis you can also find out how to sign up to ACAST Plus, as I mentioned earlier. Yes, it's a mine of information. Right, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll be sent all new episodes as they're released. It's up to you if and when you listen to them, obviously, but you won't miss any. 
If you've enjoyed this one, then do rate us on your pod player. You can also follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And you can contact us through those social media outlets or inlets or whatever they are. The theme tune written by Past the Peas Music is yours anytime because it's on Spotify. Just search My Time Capsule Theme Tune. Obviously, this was a cast-off production and our producer for a cast was John Fenton Stevens. Okay, it's almost Edinburgh time again, so I may as well tell you one of my favourite jokes from The Fringe, written and told by Andy Field. He said, I like to imagine the guy who invented the umbrella was going to call it the Brella, but he hesitated. Great joke. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.